The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time, Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, he's a uh, tech expert, host of the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast, author, uh, very interesting and easy to understand speaker about all aspects of the uh, Bitcoin ecosystem. So I want to welcome you, Andreas. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Rich. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. It might be a strange question to start out with, but you know, you're a tech guy. You've written a book on mastering Bitcoin, which obviously was uh, you know for developers, but yet you're able to explain concepts in this um, ecosystem in a, in a clearer way than anyone I've heard. Is that just a a talent that you discovered as you went, or you know, how did you morph from you know nerdy developer talking tech into talking about social issues and speaking with them, speaking about them in such a clear way? Well, I guess uh, it's it started around uh, when I was fifteen. Um, I started teaching computers in order to earn a bit of money, as well as because I, I really enjoyed teaching, so I started small. Uh, private classes and group classes, and then I uh, did professional seminars and uh, conferences and workshops and things like that. So I've been teaching my entire career, and having to explain things simply, obviously that's a that's a skill that, that takes practice, and um, gauging the level of the audience and what they respond to and refining the um, analogies or the examples to make it easy to grasp. I've basically, I've had a lot of practice. Um, and when I came to Bitcoin, I, you know, I looked around and I'm a computer scientist and certainly be, I've been writing code since I was just under 11 years old. You know, among the general population, I'm a fairly skilled programmer. Among the uh, Bitcoin developer population, I'm bottom of the second half, right? <laughs> because because we, we have some incredibly talented A-listers in, in the development teams around Bitcoin. So like I, I can still write some pretty damn good code, but nowhere near the level of, of uh, some of the core developers, for example, or any of the people working in the ecosystem. And I'm a middle-of-the-range cryptographer. So I thought, you know, what, what can I bring to the table? And I figured public speaking and communicating these concepts is something I'm, I'm skilled at, have practiced a lot. And I can do better at that than other people in the space. So I, I decided to do that. So, so the skill 
with, with public speaking and explaining came first, and Bitcoin came later, and I decided to, that was the strongest thing I could bring. Oh, okay. I watched, I don't know, probably at least 20 different videos and snippets of your talks, and I always get very interesting comparisons and new ways of thinking about things, so I appreciate it. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. I know you've told this story before, but there's two parts to it. So can you tell folks how you got into Bitcoin? And then also fast forward to today, what are you doing? I know you're speaking around the world, but what's your role right now? And what do you want your role to be going forward? So maybe start at the beginning and just then go forward to present. Sure. Um, I was between jobs and doing um, you know freelance work. In 2011 and 2012, 2011, I, I remember hearing about Bitcoin and dismissing it. I thought it was, you know, gambling money or something like that. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it, it, it's, it sounded like it was mostly focused and used by gambling sites. I didn't have much interest in that. I didn't grasp the importance. You know, a lot of other digital currencies that were centralized had come and gone before. And even though I'd been interested in that topic in the 90s with David Chalm and DigiCash and the cypherpunks and the cryptographic money. And, you know, what I was seeing lately wasn't that exciting. So I dismissed it. And then in 2012, I'm not quite sure when it was, but it was around the middle of 2012, I read the white paper. And I went into this uh, kind of state of fugue. I just went straight down the rabbit hole. I mm. was completely consumed by it for four months. I did nothing but read, code, write, read, code, write, every day, all day. And then when I emerged from that, I just decided, you know, this is this is what I want to focus my career on. So I dropped everything else, and I, I focused full-time. And one of the advantages I had in the space was I, I, I had some savings, so I was able to focus on this full-time, even though nobody was paying me to do this work. <laughs> so, so I burned through all of my savings, didn't really buying much Bitcoin because I didn't have money to buy Bitcoin, but I started speaking about Bitcoin and writing about Bitcoin, and it, it all went from there. Huh. And what about today? You know, we're in August 2017. Again, I see you through the videos, at least. You're all over the world speaking about it. But what is your role now, and what do you want your role to be in the next few years in this ecosystem? So I still see my role as um, helping to explain this complicated concept. If you think about it, every time we have one of these waves in the price, new people come to Bitcoin. On average, 60% of my audiences are brand new people. That is the first event or meetup or gathering they've ever been to. And this is consistent. So it's always new, right? And it never gets old explaining just the basics because there's a whole new group of people. And if you look forward, you know, and predict out maybe three or four years, we're going to be looking at 100 million people joining this, this digital currency movement, this technology, this uh, business movement, this uh, industry, this technological revolution, call it whatever you want, but the community will grow. And that means that 97% of all the people going out will be new people, right? Mm. <laughs> About 3 million people today who are kind of veterans or established in the space. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm doing. Okay. Um, at the same time, I, I really want to focus on the things that I think are special about this technology. And this doesn't just apply to Bitcoin, it also applies to all of the other blockchains out there. Focus on open, 
public, decentralized blockchains that are censorship persistent, that preserve individual privacy, that empower individuals. So I'm not interested in distributed ledger technology or private closed blockchains or enhancing the bottom line of a bank or supporting a clearinghouse. My focus is entirely on the open public blockchain technology and how evolutionary it is. So I really focus on issues like privacy and surveillance and um, autonomy. And so sometimes a bit more political topics than people are comfortable, but I think it's important to remember those principles. I've just finished, so I published a second book called The Internet of Money in September last year, uh, which is a collection of my talks. It's for everybody, so it's very easy to understand. It's intended to be the book you buy your Ken Tacker's uh, uncle who tells you, keeps telling you that this is all a Ponzi scheme so that they can learn something. <laughs> you know, it's a good Christmas present. Um, the Internet of Money has done very well as a book. It's, it's really the same stuff that is in those 11 videos, just edited and for clarity. We just released the audio book uh, three months ago, and that's done very well. That's narrated by Stephanie Murphy um, from Let's Talk Bitcoin, who has a beautiful voice and did great work for that book. Right. The second edition of Mastering Bitcoin was published about a month ago. Now the second volume of the Internet of Money is coming out. And of course, the big next project I'm working on is Mastering Ethereum, which I'm writing with Ethereum co-founder Gav Wood. And that will be due out in the first quarter, toward the end of the first quarter, probably it slipped a bit, of 2018. So Mastering Ethereum, very much in the vein of Mastering Bitcoin. It's a book by O'Reilly Media, published by O'Reilly um, focused on developers, software engineers, technical guide to explain exactly how Ethereum works and what you can do with it and teach you everything, you know, starting from a very basic level all the way to fairly advanced stuff. Excellent. Great. I look forward to more works from you. Um, in looking at the uh, this ecosystem, it seems incredibly political, incredibly, I don't, I'm not going to say divisive, but there's just a lot of interests that are competing to take mm -hmm. Bitcoin and other cryptos in a certain direction. Are you surprised at, at how this industry is evolving and what do you see as some of the major trends in it lately, places that it could go? I, you know, honestly, I'm not surprised at all. I think from the very beginning, I saw this as political. Political in the good sense of the word meaning that it's, it's about governing human affairs and the interaction between people and the society that they have and whatever political system they have, but mostly about individual empowerment. And so it's, it's political because money is political and uh, because money is a, is a very powerful technology in our society and it, it forms a very important part of our social architecture and the institutions we have around us, institutions which are now becoming network systems instead of institutions. So um, I always saw it as political. I always expected that as it went more mainstream, there are going to be people joining who have absolutely no interest in the principles of individual empowerment and freedom from government oppression and liberating money from a state monopoly and some of the principles that you saw early on, which were more libertarian-leaning, I guess. Right. But also moving away from the principles of privacy and um, anti-surveillance and anonymity, which are the cypherpunk principles, which I'm very strongly supporting. And, and really looking at this purely as a way to make money, as a way to move money, as a way to make payments, as a way to raise money, 
as a way to smooth over wrinkles or make systems more efficient or even just make banks more profitable. You know, I have no interest in those things, but um, a lot of the people who have joined lately have no interest in the principles I'm all about. So hmm. th that's where some of the divisiveness is, is, is going. It's the natural kind of struggle to determine the future of the system and a system that's designed to operate under adversarial conditions and also designed to be difficult to co-opt uh, and subvert, uh, which is good because I, I saw a quote recently from one of the founders of PayPal. He said, Bitcoin is what PayPal started out to be. Wow. And the question we really should be asking is why didn't PayPal stay that course? And, and the answer is really simple. As PayPal was co-opted thoroughly, thoroughly co-opted, and co-opted by the banking system, it was turned into yet another bank. And it does all of the things that banks do. It freezes accounts, it censors uh, transactions, it, um, it, it does all of the, it, it just recreated the banking system only now based on email addresses. And the reason that happened is because it was centralized. And the reason Bitcoin hasn't been co-opted is because it's decentralized and because there's no center from which to grab power. Otherwise, you know, there's lots of, there's a whole line of people waiting to grab this power. Mm. And it's a lot of money on the table. So, of course, it's divisive. Uh, of course, it's an adversarial system. It was designed to be an adversarial system. It was designed by a cypherpunk philosophy that sees this as an adversarial environment. So, yes, of course, if you go poke a multi-trillion dollar financial services industry and every government in the world with a stick, eventually one of them is going to start growling. Hmm. Yeah, do you think that uh, Bitcoin and other open blockchains can be co-opted or will be co-opted? Do you think in order to survive that that's what's going to have to happen? What, what do you think this interplay will be in the future? You know, it depends what you mean by survive. You know, co-option doesn't mean survival. Co-option means that none of the principles survive and what's left is a payment network. And I find that rather boring. And if that happens, then what I'd be looking for is something more robust and more resistant to uh, co-option that emerges. Uh, I think the the truth is that everything can resist control and co coercion and co-option. I'm not naive enough to think that there is any system that doesn't eventually get corrupted. So my political perspective is what I fancifully call disruptarianism, which is the recognition that you take any political system and you give it 30 years of working in a real society, and it will become a system that supports the elite, suppresses the, <laughs> the underclass, uh, becomes oppressive and imbalanced. Why? Because it gradually gets corrupted, and people who rise to the top pull up the ladder behind them and make sure nobody else will challenge that position, and they can maintain it, pass it on to their children in a nice hereditary line. Eventually, everything devolves into royalism, totalitarianism, or feudalism. <laughs> and, and so the only real solution to that is to disrupt again and disrupt again. And I think technology is, is a fantastic tool to do that. It's, it's proven over uh, probably three centuries now the most effective tool to, to use to disrupt power and to re-establish balance in society when, when the established political system becomes imbalanced. So Bitcoin's doing that now, and it's going to have a big impact. But then eventually, I wouldn't be surprised if we have to build something else to disrupt Bitcoin. That's okay. Uh, we now have a really good recipe for doing that. This decentralized blockchain technology, if it gets co-opted, can be 
designed to be more robust and launched again. Yeah, it makes sense. And it seems like that's exactly the way things are going. The the, uh, the private permission blockchains are going one way, and the open blockchains are you know staying their course and going their own way. And there's uh, well, yeah, honestly, the private permission blockchains are going nowhere uh, because they they discovered that blockchain as a technology is the slowest possible database that gives you the greatest degree of freedom and decentralization. And if you don't want freedom and decentralization and you centralize it, then what you're left with is the slowest possible database. Uh, <laughs> that's not a very remarkable technology. So I, I haven't seen any of these projects really go beyond proof of concept because they don't actually solve a problem. Oh, interesting. So what are some of the, um, the most interesting, fascinating use cases to you from open blockchains that are coming out right now? You know, everybody talks about applications beyond finance and beyond money. And quite honestly, currency itself is the killer app. And in fact, many of the future applications, in order to be deployed, in order to be effective, in order to have mainstream adoption, you have to have a solid basis in currency first. You have to have a native asset within the blockchain um, that is free from censorship. You can't do most of the other things unless you have that native value model. The competitive behavior that comes from a consensus algorithm like proof of work and that native assets currency is the killer app. Now, of course, there are many other derivative financial applications that have to do with corporate governance. For example, I think Ethereum's killer app is redesigning the modern corporation, creating associations of humans and machines that act independently. The, the DAO, if you like, ironically enough, is Ethereum's killer app. Not as an investment fund, but as a decentralized corporation that isn't really a corporation anymore. With Bitcoin, I think robust monetary policy, robust currency that is censorship resistance, that is killer app enough that can do so much to, to really free the world. And we're, we're going to see others. I think privacy is going to be a really important topic. We're already seeing that one of the main and most powerful differentiators for an open blockchain is privacy. Uh, and some of the strongest kind of follow-on contenders after Bitcoin have focused on, on privacy. And, and we'll see where it goes from there. I think this is a brand new space and we're going to see a lot of things. The secondary applications are going to happen a bit slower than people hope for. But I think the currency application is already causing ripples in the world. Mm. Do you think Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency has a chance of becoming a world currency used everywhere? I don't think we will have one world currency. I think it would be tremendously foolish to have one world currency. I think we've finally broken free from the yoke of the idea of monopoly currencies and nation-state currencies and a limited set of 194 currencies imposed mandatory certain populations based on their geography or borders. That's, that idea is broken. I believe in a multi-currency future in which People have choice, and they can fluidly move between competing currencies that suit their needs, and they can choose their currency for what they need. It's almost like saying, could we have one vehicle that replaces all vehicles, that's simultaneously a bus, a tractor, and a sports car? Mm. And, and what you end up doing is creating something that fails miserably at all three of those functions, because they represent trade-offs. So a world currency would impose a single monetary policy and a single way of operating on everyone. That's a terrible idea. 
I think Bitcoin gives us a choice, and Ethereum gives us another choice, and Monero gives us another choice, and, and so on and so forth. All of the different open blockchains give us a variety of choices in addition to the 194 national currencies, and choice is the name of the game. World reserve, world currency. I mean, I'm, I expect we're going to see a lot more people use Bitcoin as a reserve, as a solid foundation for value, just like people use gold, just like people use the US dollar, the Swiss franc, and the Japanese yen. None of those replaced each other, complement each other, and they have slightly different characteristics. Yeah, this is the first time that I've thought about, you know, I'm in the US, so I think about the US dollar, but it, it's weird. When looking at, at tokens or at cryptocurrencies, you're right, you now have a choice. Maybe I like the features of Dash better, or Monero, or Zcash, and you think about money and Maybe I want to have certain money and certain transactions in this token and other ones yes. in that token. And you what's don't really think about that. Is, what's really interesting is when your wallet makes those choices for you in real time. It's like this doesn't necessarily need to be something that you consciously decide even. If you have programmatic money and if you have fluid cross-chain high liquidity exchanges between chains, perhaps not exchanges, just decentralized swaps between chains, um, then you can essentially transmogrify any, any currency into any currency, any token into any token, instantaneously or near instantaneously. So as you're walking up to a store where you want to buy something, you know, you change your wallet to privacy mode and it selects the most privacy sensitive uh, currency and wallet you have and creates a very privacy focused transaction. Um, for some uses, you want store value, really robust store value. For some uses, you might want really rapid microtransaction. And your wallet may decide to do that, just moving things around as needed. Just like your cell phone decides which cell tower to connect to, or um, your laptop decides how to route packets over Tor. That, that would be my ideal situation where you don't even need to think about what you're using. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Do you know of any developers that are working on such a thing? Well, it's not yet possible to even start working on such a thing because what we don't have yet is fluid cross-chain transfers between coins. But, I mean, if you look at something like Jack's wallet, for example, or Coinomi, you know, these multi-currency wallets that incorporate Shapeshift, it's beginning to look a bit like well, the universal wallet that I think of. How much work would needs to go into uh, making a universal wallet, even for the top 20 or top 50 different cryptocurrencies? Well, I think we'd first need to see, honestly, I think we'd first need to see um, layer two technologies like uh, payment channels and lightning network, because that really allows you to do very fluid, very low cost um, transactions. And it also allows you mm -hmm. to do cross currency transactions. People don't realize that with the lightning network, you can actually switch currencies along the payment path. So you can, you know, send a micro payment on a Lightning Network payment channel in Bitcoin and the other person receives it in, I don't know, Litecoin or Ethereum. So you can use that to do currency swaps. That'd be really interesting to see. Definitely, yeah. So last question or two, um, what topics are you excited to talk about that are not being talked about or which topics do you think really need to be brought into the mainstream for discussion that are maybe being avoided or subsumed right now? I think for me, the, the biggest topic that is always top of my mind and very rarely top of anybody else's mind, at least from what I see in the forums, is privacy 
versus surveillance. I think people are not realizing that we are seeing society undergo a fundamental shift in the relationship between individuals and the state when it comes to money. You know, I was having a conversation recently with someone and said, well, what would happen if we had just untraceable anonymous transactions? How would society behave? I'm like, well, we've had untraceable anonymous transactions for about five to 10,000 years. It's called cash. So that's how society would behave. That's the norm. The aberration is to route all transactions between individuals and introduce a corporation as an intermediary. So you can't do payments person to person. You have to go payment from person to corporation to corporation to corporation to person. And every one of them has a say as to whether they proceed. And where everything is surveilled, where your entire financial life is not only surveilled, but is held in custody by third parties who can be quite easily ordered to turn you off because yep. the, the risk of disobeying a government order in that network is enormous. That's a totalitarian society, and we are marching towards it. People talk about eradicating cash because it's inconvenient and used by criminals. You know, if the only way you can do payments is through the banks, then the only criminals you'll have is bankers, and they'll be the worst criminals of them all. Yeah. And if the only authorization you require is from a government, then your government will become the worst criminal government you can imagine. You go to the wrong uh, protest, you go, go to the wrong meeting, political meeting, and the government can flip a switch and tell all the banks to freeze everything, and you no longer can buy food because the shop won't take cash and you won't have cash. Now what? Right? This is a really dangerous path we're going down. And it's not the norm. We've always had anonymous person-to-person -person instantaneous transactions in the form of cash. And switching that off is like saying, let's not have public parks anymore because, you know, homeless people congregate there. Let's only have Disney parks where you have to pay a fee to enter and it's all managed by a corporation. That is a terrible idea, right? I agree. <laughs> um, you need a commons, you need a public space, you need a, a space where neutrality is enforced, where civil rights are protected. Cash is that in the commercial space. And if you remove that and put corporate policies in place and have only corporate payment networks, we're in a world of trouble. So privacy versus surveillance, uh, the, the war on cash, the war on currency, the current you know, geopolitical uh, currency wars that are happening. Uh, this is another really important concept that people don't understand. There's been a steady progression. What starts out as a currency war becomes a trade war and then becomes a shooting war. That's exactly what happened mm -hmm. in the 30s. It's what happened in the previous century. You start off with currency manipulation, race to the bottom, inflation, gimmicks, currency controls. Then it, you have all-out trade war tariff restrictions, embargoes. We, we saw that in the 30s. We're beginning to see it again. And trade wars inevitably and invariably turn into all-out shooting wars. We don't want to go down that path. So currency is a precursor to both creating the conditions for war between nations, and also creating the conditions for disarming that. Uh, Bitcoins at 4,000, or whether we're going to have two meg blocks or one meg block, or whether Ethereum is going to flippening on us, that's bullshit. Uh, really important issues here is we're a tiny, tiny minority in, in a world that doesn't uh, understand what we're doing, 
And, and meanwhile, enormous interests are moving trillions around like chess pieces, um, gearing up for the next war in order to wipe out that. That's a slightly bigger problem. It's true. Well, Andreas, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. I really appreciate it. And your insight is needed. So uh, keep doing what you're doing. And, and thank you. Thank you so much, Rich. It's been a pleasure. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.